Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our last session for the day. Our speaker for this session is Gabriel J. Katanis. Dr. Katanis is the director of the Filipino American Ministry Initiative at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he teaches ethics. He is also the founding pastor of Garden City Covenant Church, a congregation serving immigrant families and young professionals. He has been a lead pastor for 12 years and received his PhD in theological ethics from Loyola University in Chicago, where he lives with his wife and two sons. And I will now hand the stage over to Dr. Katanis for his session titled, The Pastor as Patient and Agent. Thank you so much, Alex, for all of your help and to all of you who've joined us today. I'm going to pull up my screen and hopefully I won't have any troubles. Alex has been tutoring me well, and I think we're okay. Welcome to this session, The Pastor as Patient and Agent. I I invite you as I welcome those of you joining us to, who are still in the conference, by the way, and haven't yet checked out for the day to introduce yourself. You know, I don't want to assume that everyone here is in academia or in ministry. You could be not only a lay person, but just interested in the topics that we cover. So let us know what you're up to. Great. Welcome. I see that we have some longtime pastors in the group a missionary as well, New Jersey, San Jose representing. Awesome. New York, Sunnyvale. Wow. All of you in warm places. I'm really jealous. Uh, hopefully I won't show it too much, but wonderful. Welcome, Dr. Lee. And oh, good. Some Canadians in the house. I'm Canadian born as well, which I'll get to in a moment. But glad to have you all. A little bit about me as we go forward. This is me and my family, uh, my wife, Lynn, who is an educator for about 13 years or so now. She's been in the classroom for most of that, but now is an instructional coach in a public school system here. And then our eldest, who is seven years old, and our youngest, who is now four. And I love them. They're wonderful. This is our church, Garden City Covenant Church. We're on the far northwest side of Chicago. We're inside the city, but we have folks coming in from all over the place. We are a church who actually grew through the pandemic. And that was a real gift from God's grace to us. And I just got out of the session led by Dr. David Wang and I thought, wow, how true it was that so many people in ways we did not expect came to our church looking for healing. And in that way, we doubled in size. Though we are only five years old as a church, we are, I, I would like to say, we punch above our weight class. Wonderful people and full of folks who have found their way into therapy as part of their healing journey. And so I'm grateful to, to be their pastor. As was said, I am also the director of the new Filipino American Ministry Initiative at Fuller. And that means that my role is to support the team to build community and educate and resource students and faculty both at and beyond Fuller, focusing on Filipino American Christians and Christianity. So this past October being Filipino American History Month, we celebrated by taking an art walk and a tour of historic Filipino town 
in Los Angeles. So this is a group of us at Unidad Park. And I'm there in the blue shirt, close to the middle. And next to me, slightly behind me, is the artist who painted this mural, Elicio Art Silva. He's got several works, but also designed the archway leading into historic Filipino town. So I, you know, am a son or a child of the Filipino American church. And I'll say a bit about that real soon, but I'm glad to be with you all and so grateful for this event. I've learned a lot from the speakers I've been able to listen to thus far. So I'm really happy to be here. My hopes for our short time together are these, that I could connect with you and you would connect with me and each other. Also, that I could share with you some of my experiences with ministry and in therapy, that I could offer a framework, a framework, not the framework, for clarifying responsibility, and of course, to encourage you towards health. Okay? So the part one, by the way, is the pastor as patient, and part two is the pastor as agent. I don't have an overview slide, but I just want to clue you into where I'm going based on the title of this workshop. This is me in the front, our family in 1986. This was the sponsorship card or the prayer card that we sent out to people while we were still living in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. My father on the right-hand side, my mother on the left-hand side, my father and my mom, they together planted several Filipino-American, Filipino-Canadian Baptist churches. My father is a pastor. He is the son of a pastor. So I am actually the third generation of pastors in our family. And my father is also a church planter. So church planters like campus ministers and many others in mission, they know what it's like to raise support. And on the back of this card was the appeal. You know, we invite you to pray with us and to commit to praying for the Filipino community in the Chicago suburbs, which is where we were heading to from Canada. And also we invite you to support us at whatever amount you're able to give per month, per year, what have you. Um, one of the things that's important about this experience is not only that I grew up as a PK and as a pastor's grandkid, I'm actually the 10th pastor in the family, family um, but that we report. In the Filipino community, even though there are now more than 4 million in the United States, two-thirds are Catholic and less than a third are Protestant. But besides that, we're an immigrant community, and that was an even more difficult experience back in 1986. In the 80s, there was significant conflict with trade conflict between the United States and Japan. And there was a significant amount of anti-Asian racism at that time. Many of you know that, so I don't have to explain too much. But these things were part of what made life challenging, moving from the very diverse metropole of Toronto to the Chicago suburb in the Midwest in the 1980s. And we were poor. <laughs> um, this was just an example of the kind of gatherings we had, because though we were poor, we were close. That's not an uncommon story. But you can see on the right hand, you can see the Filipino, the Philippine flag. And on the left hand on the wall, you can see parts of the American flag with the cross 
in the middle, kind of interesting juxtaposition there, but that's actually me directly in front of the cross, closest to the cross, being on stage performing a children's song with the kid back in the early church plant in the Chicago Burbs in the late 1980s. And I'm, you know, a, a real child and son of this church was a Filipino Baptist church, maybe the biggest and most stable in perhaps the Midwest out of Protestant Filipino churches in the Midwest. And even maybe, maybe not so much today, but at that time and for a very long time under my father's tenure, it was a great place to grow up. My parents retired from ministry in 2009. I should say retired and put that in quotes because they decided to move to the Philippines and to plant more churches. So that's their way of retiring. And they just love it. They are all about it. They have a great time doing it. And so I think that's important to say because it informs a lot of the models that I had for ministry growing up that started with my grandfather, my Lolo, and then all my uncles and aunties who were either missionaries or pastors or married to pastors or in some way involved in the ministry. It wasn't a job. The work of ministry was a life. It was truly a calling, but often a calling that included all aspects of life and family life, and sometimes perhaps to a fault, but definitely it was a whole life commitment or calling. So I took over the church after they retired, and this is me preaching early on. Look at the size of that pulpit. I know many of you maybe have churches where the pulpit or the lectern is significantly large. Um, as I took over that church, little by little, the pulpit got smaller, and I think the banners, they came down. The suits and the jackets, they were gone. The ties were definitely gone. They were gone like first. But church changed over time, and that was early in my pastoral career. This was the church in 2013, and it was similar to this before I left in um, 2017. But we were able to break that 80-20 mark where they say that, you know, if there is no group that is more than 80%, of the church demographic that it would be considered to be a multicultural church. And that was part of what we wanted to do at that time. Although I think I, there are great reasons for remaining committed to Filipino American ministry. We were desiring to move past that. And so the faces are quite small, but there are people from many different backgrounds in the community there. A wonderful place to grow up. And yet it was not easy. So I don't have a picture for what I'm talking about related to this slide, because in 2010, I went through a very difficult breakup. I was dating somebody for more than eight years and had all kinds of plans. And in 2010, actually right around the time when I took over the pastorate of the church, went through a very difficult breakup. And that was part of what began my entrance into therapy. Our, my former denomination affiliated with that church supported pastors at a really great subsidy with a really great subsidy to go into professional help and meet with therapists who specialized also in supporting ministry people. I say that because it's not just pastors, but also their families who often need mental health support. And I was able to start receiving that. Thankfully, because of my mom, who was trained in psychology, 
um, though she didn't pursue licensure. Uh, she used her work and her training in the church space. It, there wasn't a stigma for my family about seeking help from professionals. And I really am grateful for my mom in that way. And um, I, I grew so much and really started to begin the healing process and learn a lot about myself. And I want to share with you some of the things that happened as well as some of the things that I learned. So little did I know that the following year, 2011, my eldest brother, the brother in the middle, would suffer a traumatic brain injury. He would have a severe stroke and would require a partial lobotomy. And he was comatose for several months. He was airlifted from California to Chicago. And he was little by little given therapies and medicines to wake him from coma. And he was not able to ever do the same kind of ministry, though, thankfully, 11, 12 years later, he's actually very involved in his church, which is wonderful. But it rocked our whole family. And at that time, having been in therapy for a year or so, I was actually well positioned to support my parents and the rest of our family as we were wrestling with this and struggling to heal, though the healing was not even a priority for the first several months or maybe more. Uh, but my role there was significantly helped by my experience in therapy. And as ministry went on in that space, you know, I received a letter like this, but this kind of characterized some of what would happen here and there in the context where I was pastoring. This is an attached message that was sent to me through a secure email from one of my former congregants expressing to me that the topic of undocumented immigration came up in church in one of our leadership meetings, and they wanted to conf confide in me that they were undocumented. And they wrote more in the letter, essentially asking whether they would be allowed to stay in the church or not. I've written about this elsewhere, and I have always been struck by that question being what was on their mind how would they not be part of the church? But in their minds, for several reasons, they wondered whether they could still belong. And this began to raise a lot of questions for me about what was the role of the pastor related to issues like not just immigration or advocacy, but specifically the very close, um, proximate, and intimate experiences of congregants. And as time went on, uh, more of this happened and I, you know, began to learn and it coincided actually with the beginning of my PhD studies. And here's the stat. According to the Center for Migration Studies estimates, there are 1,734,600 undocumented immigrants from Asia and the Pacific Islands, comprising 17% of the total undocumented population living in the U.S. So there are a lot of undocumented people from Asia. And the Filipino community is actually a very large portion of that. Here in Chicago in 2015 also, we had a little bit of a, um, a movement around the release of the video and the shooting of Laquan McDonald. Specifically, he was shot 16 times by Officer Jason Van Dyke of the Chicago Police Department. And 
leading clergy in the city of Chicago put out a call for support from churches of goodwill to join them on Michigan Avenue, which is the central shopping district in downtown Chicago, on Black Friday and to boycott shopping, but also to fill the whole street with protesters and to come and pray. And over and over, you know, we would shout out 16 shots, 16 shots. And it was for me, because it coincided with the Black Lives Matter movement, a real call to action. And it raised a lot of important questions for me. But in that space, I started to see that there was a very strong presence of what we call colonial mentality. Now, that comes from the phrase coined by Franz Fanon, but you know, one Filipino-American psychologist talks about it this way. Colonial mentality is a perception of ethnic or cultural inferiority that is a specific consequence of centuries of colonization under Spain and the U.S., a form of internalized oppression that rejects anything Filipino and glorifies the colonizer's values, looks, and religious traditions. For example, I'm not saying that everyone who voted for Donald Trump is driven by colonial mentality, but I am saying that colonial mentality drives many people, especially Filipino-Americans, to vote for Donald Trump. And I had that sentiment going all the way back to the campaign of 2015 leading up to the 2016 election. And I started to see that the things that I felt most convicted about, that I believed really were important to Jesus, were not quite important to the same, uh, the people in my church. And a lot of that I would trace back to colonial mentality. So church became strained in many ways. And even for me, pastoring also became difficult. Kevin Nadal, another Filipino-American psychologist, says every single mental health issue that any Filipino-American has can at least be traced or correlated with some form of colonial mentality. Now, I don't think he's exaggerating because he's a clinician and a researcher saying this, but that was definitely true because those desires that many Filipino Americans and many other Asian Americans and other immigrants who come from formerly colonized contexts and countries, you know, it, it is really something that we can see. We can understand, especially as pastors, as we observe what is important to them. And Another challenge that I began to see through therapy and also my learning in school was that the central concept or core concept of Filipino psychology, which is called kapwa, um, also had a shadow side. I want to say up front that it is a wonderful quality, a wonderful concept that holds our community together. And the father of Filipino psychology, Virgilio Enriquez says, in Filipino, kapwa is the unity of the self and others. The English others is actually used in opposition to the self and implies the recognition of the self as a separate identity. In contrast, kapwa is a recognition of shared identity, an inner self shared with others. Now, so this is a very wonderful thing. And Yet it also poses many challenges. Um, you can imagine that if you feel a shared identity with others and you feel like your sense of identity is bound up in theirs and vice versa, what happens then when you disagree? And what happens also when you need to individuate, but that's not something that's been well taught or modeled in your community? 
given that the closeness of the community is often so prioritized, even at the expense of a person's own interest as an individual. So there is a shadow side to this core value in Filipino culture um, that remains, despite centuries and layers of colonization, the, the shadow side of it is this struggle with being oneself. This is part of what I learned. And I think another unfortunate experience I had was awakened to me through my discussions with my therapist. Why was I having such difficulty and even bodily experiences while doing ministry in that space? Well, it turned out that I was actually the victim of spiritual abuse, even as the lead pastor for eight plus years. Because we also have another cultural value we call utang naloob, which means inner debt or debt of oneself to the community or to others. And having grown up in that space, um, it was actually quite challenging to take on leadership within that space and then challenge the community and its leaders. And the response of many who were my elders, who were my spiritual mothers and fathers, was actually damaging for me. But I would not have known that had I not been able to have regular conversations, weekly conversations with a therapist who understood these dynamics and what was happening to me, how it was affecting my relationship with God and also with myself. Okay. So I became the pastor who was patient, not patient as in a quality of my, my compassion and long suffering, but who became a patient, a client, and still am today. It's 12, uh, 13 years now that I've been working with my therapist and I'm praying that insurance will allow us to keep working together. But I, you know, want to say importantly that I'm not just a patient. And if you are struggling through issues that require professional help, you are not just a patient. But as a pastor, I was also and am also an agent. And this is where my training and perspective as a theological ethicist kind of comes in. But Jess shared this in her plenary. And I also had this in my slideshow. And I want to just mention this, you know, the increase in people from 2021 into 2022, more people saying, yes, they have really considered quitting full-time ministry and fewer people saying, no, we know that burnout is really has been on the rise. And several of my friends, if not yours also have left the ministry or are contemplating doing so now. But I wanted to also draw attention to the same, you know, set of data and some of the reasons, the top reason that these pastors listed as uh, informing their consideration of quitting was the immense stress of the job. Second was loneliness and isolation. Third, political divisions and so on and so on. I mean, there are so many here and it, it would have been great to see this data specific to Asian American churches and pastors as well. So if one of you researchers has the heart to do it, um, I would love to support that. Uh, Agnes Constante, journalist, wrote for the LA Times this little excerpt. Multiple studies show that Asian Americans account for a disproportionately small amount and number of leadership and management positions. A study from the journal Feminist Ec Economics shows that Filipinos are less likely to be promoted to manager or supervisor than white Americans, 
with comparable qualifications. Another outcome of colonial mentality is colonial debt, a tendency to tolerate, accept, or minimize experiences of injustice, including racism and discrimination. That last sentence I won't reread, but wow, what an outcome that things that happened in previous generations affecting our great-grandparents, our grandparents, etc., affect us in these ways that we find ourselves losing agency, tolerating, accepting, minimizing injustices against us, against our communities, including racism and discrimination. So I ask this before I get to kind of, you know, the last 10, 15 minutes of the meat and potatoes here. How can we, as Asian American pastors, as leaders, as clinicians, as academics, how can we serve and lead healthily as Asian Americans amidst countless challenges and overwhelming demands? You think about all that stress that has been on leaders in Christian communities and leaders of all backgrounds in the last several years. Well, I want to say this again. We must remember that pastors and ministers are not just servant leaders, though we are that. We're not just that. We are also needy people and responsible agents. We're responsible agents. And so I want to say four things about responsibility that I hope will help you as they have helped me, as therapy has helped me, and as my studies have helped me. I've found responsibility to be a really life-giving framework. First, it is relational and focused. Okay. When we think about all the demands and all the challenges presented with us, it helps us to think about what our responsibilities are because it invites us to prioritize relationships. Okay, so let me give you Ethics 101 here and just say, okay, deontology, which is an approach or framework that is guided by duty or law, it focuses on the obedient act, right? Doing the right thing means obeying or doing one's duty, specifically the right act in the right way. Teleology or teleological ethics focuses on an end or a result. What is the telos? Virtue ethics or character ethics focuses on the agent's character, their growth the way that they might change and become a more harmonious or just person, they themselves. But responsibility ethics is relational in the way that we might see in scripture here. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the native born among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is very relational language. Both Israel and the alien, the foreigner, and God with Israel as the paradigm for relationship. So I think it's a helpful framework because it focuses us. But let me go to the second thing. Responsibility also clarifies for us scope. Right? You can say that out loud or tell your neighbor scope. It is so important for pastors and leaders to be clear on scope. It's not easy, but I think it makes a huge difference down the road. In other words, what I'm trying to say is an agent is not responsible for everything. 
you as a leader, as a pastor, as a parent, as a spouse, as a child, as a caregiver, as a teacher, as an administrator, you are not responsible for everything. I know I'm a pastor, so you get my little soft kind of muted preaching here, but I really want us to understand that and find it so important because as children of immigrants or as immigrants ourselves, we are often charged with taking care of many people and things. And it can become a script for us, whether through family or even through our, our, ourselves, that we are responsible for everything. And that if we don't do it, it'll never be done. But I would always remind us to ask, what are some consequences of pastors and leaders lacking clear scope? Maybe it's better to ask that of ourselves, right? What happens or what has happened when I lack clear scope, when I think I'm responsible for everything? And I think it's not that it was an evangelistic strategy or any kind of plan or expectation we had, but it was not within the scope of many churches' leadership to speak to issues of racism, like anti-Asian racism, or like the value of Black lives and their dignity. And because of that, they failed in responsibility. And it hurt many people in their churches who came to churches like ours. But similarly, on perhaps the other side, it is not for me or you to take on every single thing. And doing so would be disastrous for us and for our churches, right? So pastor, leader, you probably need therapy. I just want to say that it is a good thing. And one of my yeah, claims in churches, you know, maybe we didn't see 15 conversions last year, but, you know, we saw five people move into therapy. And you probably need therapy, though you are probably not a therapist. Don't try to take on that work. It would be negligence to do so, of course, because you're not licensed for it, but stay in your lane. Clarify your scope. Recognize what is your responsibility and what is not. Responsibility acknowledges individual and systemic sin. See, because if we're not responsible for everything, we can also recognize that the world is broken. Nothing is the way that it ought to be, the way it was and the way it one day will be. And yet, knowing that the world is broken, it doesn't absolve me. But it does help me to accept that this is not all that there is. There is brokenness, both individually, even within myself, and systemically. Um, this is a mix of a rabbi's words with a portion of the Talmud, but You've probably seen this on social media. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You're not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. This is really a statement of responsibility. And fourth, responsibility, in contrast to guilt, which we need, our legal system relies on that, right? Liability, which is also a very real and important concept, and accountability. These three things, guilt, liability, accountability, they are important, but 
Responsibility is not the same as those because while those look backward to assign guilt or liability or accountability, responsibility looks forward. Okay, I'm drawing a little bit there from the philosopher Iris Marion Young, um, the late philosopher, but she talks about this and I've adopted this and found it to be really helpful because my community, the Filipino and Filipino American community has suffered centuries of colonization. And there is a lot of pain and brokenness in our families and in our churches because of that. Now, what is the best thing for me to do, though I ought to understand why things are the way they are? I ought to take responsibility and look forward, right? Or even present, do justly now, right? Abraham Joshua Heschel famously said this, some or not all are guilty but all can be responsible. In other words, relating to the Holocaust, you know, not everyone did the worst. Not everyone was involved directly, but all can be responsible in affecting the way things are now and going forward. So I want to give you a real simplistic formula, and this is intentionally simplistic. I, you know, teach this to my ethics students, but it, you'll remember it. X is responsible, okay? Let's not point to others, but ourselves. I'm responsible. X is responsible. And X is responsible to Y. Right? Consider the relationship, right? X is not in relationship with everybody, not in the same way as with Y. Of course, there are priorities in responsibilities and in relationships. But thinking about responsibility enables us to clarify the priority of each relationship. I have covenantal responsibilities with God, with my spouse. I have familial responsibilities to my children, etc. Um, but I do not owe the same level of responsibility to everyone. Likewise, pastor, leader, you are responsible to specific people. And X is responsible to Y for Z. We are responsible to specific people for specific actions. And it's true we find ourselves in a web of multiple overlapping responsibilities, but we're not responsible for everything, everywhere, to everyone. Okay. When I think about this as a pastor and as a theologian, I think about Luke 10 and this very famous story and parable. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Of course, famously, Wanting to vindicate himself or justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? What you see here, let me pause, is a clarification of responsibility. Preachers often say that the wise man, smart man here wanted really to know who his neighbor was not. So Jesus tells the story to illustrate who is the neighbor to whom he is responsible. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. This is Jesus again. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Pastor, leader, listener, your church needs many ministries. It's true. There are a lot of needs, um, but your church probably does not need every ministry. You need to be involved in leading many things, but you do not lead, need to lead everything. Speaking to myself. So here's how I just, you know, invite us to wind this down. Let us do our best. That's first. To participate God's work for people in our paths released from doing everything. We ought to do our best to be responsible, to make sure that, you know, we really seek to honor the relationships that we have actively in word and in deed, because that is God's work that God is doing for the sake of other people who cross our paths. And in so doing, let us be released from feeling like we need to, or like we are responsible for every single thing. Be released from that. Here's a part of our responsibility as well. Jesus says, again, grounding us relationally, and yet with a pretty strong invitation, come to me, all who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Pastor, leader, you need rest. Be responsible to receive it. You're not responsible for everything, uh, but for specific things, for specific people in specific places. All right. I invite, I invite your questions and we'll be happy to stick around in the lounge afterward. Thank you so much, Dr. Gutierrez. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.